All right. Glad to hear it. Glad to see all you guys here this evening. Let's open our Bibles now to Job chapter 38. <clears throat> Job chapter 38. In, in our study tonight, we're going to hear from God for the first time in 37 chapters. We're going to hear Jehovah speak. The storm that Elihu had been describing last time we were together in chapter 37 has finally broke. And God now speaks to Job out of the storm. The answer to Job's problems was not an explanation about God. So Job's not, God's not going to talk, talk to Job about Job's problems. Or, or to you know, his three friends or Elihu. But God was going to give Job a revelation about himself. These four men, Job's three friends and Elihu, had spoken about the greatness of God. They defended the greatness of God. But in all of that, they they failed to persuade Job of God's greatness. But when God showed his majesty and his greatness, it humbled Job. And all Job could do was stand silently before the presence of God in a quiet submission. That was the turning point for Job. God revealed himself to Job. And Job found personal contact with God. And God certainly has the ability to reveal himself to us. Because God can do anything. But it's a problem for God to find somebody who's ready to meet him. You know, God doesn't reveal himself to superficial saints who might be looking only for a new experience that they can boast about, or to curious Christians who just want to sample, just sample a deeper fellowship with God. But they don't want to have to, you know, pay too great a price. Many people have the idea that it's always an enjoyable experience getting to know God in a deeper way. But that's not what the saints of God in the Bible would say. Because sometimes God must speak to us out of the storm. And this is how he spoke to Israel on Mount Sinai. Thunder and lightning. When he gave the law to Moses. And Moses trembled. Joshua fell on his face before the Lord. And so did David. Daniel was exhausted and ill after seeing the visions of God that God gave him. The vision of Christ's glory on the Mount of Transfiguration left Peter, James, and John lying on their face in the dirt. We read in Revelation where John fell at Christ's feet as though he had died. Experiencing this majestic demonstration of God's power made Job very open to what God had to say to him. And God's speech to Job here in chapter 38 centered on God's works in nature. And it consisted of 77 questions that he asked Job that are mixed together with with godly remarks about those things relating to the questions. The whole purpose of this question was to make Job realize his own inadequacy and inability to meet God as an equal and to defend himself. To defend what he had been talking about all this time. And in this chapter, the Lord takes up the debate with Job, and he tells Job, you get ready to have this debate with me. 
And I'm going to demand that you answer every question that I ask you. Let's begin now in chapter 38 with verse 1 as God begins to speak. Notice, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. The chapter begins by making it clear who's talking. He said, the Lord answered Job. Or better, as you notice, the Lord is in all capitals. This is, uh, th- this is uh, another way of, of saying Jehovah. Jehovah God, right now, Jehovah God himself is talking to Job. God is now called the Lord. That is Jehovah God, that Jehovah God, a name that hasn't been used in the book of Job since the first two chapters, except chapter 12, 9. And in their speeches, the men have called him God and the Almighty, but not Jehovah. And this is the name of God revealed to Israel centuries later. And the name speaks of his self-existence. I am that I am. I am hope. I am strength. I am power. I am authority. I am, I am, I am. He could continue to go on. And this is his, and, and being I am that I am is his personal covenant relationship to his people. And notice it says that God chose to speak from the whirlwind. Goes on to verse 2. Let's start with one again. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? The first thing God said to Job was to ask about Elihu. Who is this guy that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Now, the text supports the idea that God interrupted Elihu's speech as he was talking. Because Elihu wasn't giving any knowledgeable or helpful answers for Job's situation. Elihu wasn't doing any better than Job's three friends had done. And later on, God will have something to say about the things that Job's three friends had said. And it's not going to be very nice. It's not going to be very flattering. So after asking about Elihu, God gave some instructions to Job about the speech that God is about to make to Job. Now, when God said, who is this? Doesn't mean Elihu, the last speaker, as some think. And there are some who think not only that these words are directed to Elihu, but all that is said here in the following chapter, and all that's said here in the following chapter. But it was Job that the Lord spoke to and answered as expressed in Job 38.1. And these words are taken by Job to himself in 40, chapter 42.3. When the Lord asks, who is this speaking? The question doesn't mean he doesn't know who he's talking to. But he's wondering, why is such a man as Job, why should he talk the way he did and is angry with me and rebuking him? And he's rebuking him for it. He says, or notice, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Either Job's own counsel, his wisdom and feeling about things, which were spoken in such an unclear way that they weren't understandable by those who heard them, those things that he said. And as a result, they were led into some mistaken ideas about Job. Or rather, it's God's counsel, his work of providence, which are done according to the counsel of his will and were misrepresented by Job as not being wise counsel or good counsel, just counsel or reasonable counsel. Look at verse 3. 
It says, now prepare yourself, Job, like a man. I will question you and you shall answer. At that point, I would have tried to hide. Here God exhorts Job, get ready. Brace yourself, Job. You know what? We need to be ready. We need to be prepared to listen to God when he speaks. We need to prepare our hearts and our mind when he speaks. And a lot of Christians aren't prepared in their mind and their heart for God's message. So they don't listen very well to the message. Or become interested in any message that God has to do with spirituality. God tells Job, I'm going to speak to you now. And I'm going to question you. This is going to be a question and answer period, Job. God says, I will ask the questions. And Job, you will answer them. In reality, it would only be a question period because Job has nothing to say. Job has no answers. The subject of the questions that God asked had to do with the creation. Job has shown God's power and wisdom in all the creation, like in the stars and the weather and the animals. It might seem kind of odd why God spoke so harshly to Job, but not to his three friends in Elihu. It's because they had a lot more faults than Job did. The answer to this puzzle is that Job is worth more than others. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We're all equal in our worth to God, but some are more usable. And that's what it is here. And this can be illustrated by the work of, of somebody who works with precious metals. I mean, precious stones, you know, precious, precious gems. If you give a stone cutter a bunch of precious stones, he's going to put those stones that are most precious on the grindy wheel for the longest time. It's the same with Job. God was, Job was, was a real gem to God. God had a real gem in Job. And he's going to put Job to the grindstone to polish him again and again while the others are being on the side, held on the side. The first questioning session of Job by God about creation had to do with questions about the material creation. And God asked Job several questions about the material creation. And the questions that God asked Job are in eight different categories. The first one is the moment of creation. Look at the first part of verse 4. He asked Job, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Now, this is a rhetorical question. In other words, it's a question asked in order to create a dramatic effect or to make a point rather than to get an answer. And the answer is that Job wasn't around at the time of the creating of the material creation. God laid the foundations, but he laid them before anybody was around. Nobody existed at the time God laid the foundations of the world. That definitely shows that God is superior to mankind. The eternal God humbles men. The second question that, that, that God asked Job or, or is the maker in the creating, creation. Look at verse, the second part of verse 4 and verse 5. He says, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? God is the maker of creation. It says he laid the foundations of the earth. So there, there's no room for evolution here. All created things require a maker. And the maker of the great creation is God. Any other explanation is laughable. You know, when people, you know, the, the, the brains of this world, the scientists say that something was created out of nothing. Or there was an explosion and now the earth exists. 
you know, some celestial explosion and, and we're a result of that, it's kind of like a printing factory exploding and you end up with a dictionary as a result. You know, an explosion does not, does not bring about order. It causes destruction and chaos. So there's no room for evolution here. And a Harvard professor said this, I choose to believe in that which is impossible rather than to accept the alternative which is unthinkable. Creation versus man's idea of how we were here. The third question he asked Job is the wonder of the creating. Look at verse 6. He says to Job, to what were the foundations fastened or who laid its cornerstone? One of the great wonders is the creating of the the earth as well as the universe. And God hung the earth and the moon and the planets on the stars on nothing. How are they hanging up there in the universe? How are they hanging up there in the heavens? God's word is the only foundation that's needed by God. The fourth question, the joyfulness of the creating. Look at verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, the response from heaven about the material creating was one of celebration and a holy joy. It's only man who complains about the creation, and his complaints are all caused by his sin, which started in the Garden of Eden. The fifth question that God asked Job, here's the mystery of the creating. Look at verses, okay, we're going to jump around just to follow the flow here. Look at verses 16 and 17. Have you entered the spring of the sea or have you walked in search of the depths? Have you, have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? There is still a lot that we don't know about the creation, not only materially, but also spiritually. Job, just like us, haven't seen the origins of a lot of things, and especially the doors of death that haven't been opened to us so that we could see all about it. This limited knowledge about the creation, man, it should humble us before God because God made all of these things. How great is his wisdom and his power? Then the sixth question. Notice the measurements of the creating. Look at verse 18. He says to Job, Job, have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. If you can't measure or don't know the measurements of creation, it would be the right thing to do to honor the creator and not complain about him, Job. The seventh question is the dwelling place in the creating. Look at verses 19 and 20. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And darkness, where is its place? That you may take it to its territory. That you may know the paths to its home. In a figurative way, light and darkness, he said, are are to have a dwelling place. In other words, Job, where does the light stay when it's daytime? Where does the night stay when it's daytime? Where is their dwelling place? Where do they stay? So, again, in in a figurative way, light and darkness are said to have a dwelling place from where they come out to do their work of either giving light or giving darkness. This is another question Job can't answer, which requires him to recognize the greatness of God and to not complain about how God deals with mankind. The eighth thing, eighth question that God answers, asks Job, is the mocking of the creation. Look, verse 21. 
Do you know it, Job, because you were born then or because the number of your days is great? So this is holy sarcasm by God. In other words, he's saying, oh, that's right, Job. You know the answers to all these questions because you've been around such a long time, which, you know, is compared to my eternality. You've been around just as long as I have, Job, so you know all those questions, don't you? And Job deserves this sarcastic review because he was critical of God. And yet Job was so inferior to God. In other words, God was, was, his criticism was like saying, was saying, Job, you were around when all of this was going on. You were around when I was creating everything. You see, these eight questions that God asked Job, they are really heavy questions. You know what happens when you're asked, I, well, I thought of myself, when you are asked questions like this, you want to just crawl in a hole and hide. Because you absolutely have no idea to the answers. It reminds me of when I was in school. You know, when, 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 it's, when something is way over your head, it's like being in the classroom when the subject that's being discussed, you don't know, have anything to do with what's going on. Maybe if I'd have paid attention, I would, but you start to slide down in your seat trying to hide behind the guy in front of you, hoping the teacher's not going to ask you to answer the question. He's not going to pick you. You know, and that, that makes you twice as quiet. I don't want to make a move because I don't want him to pay, draw attention to me. And if the teacher picks you, you know everybody in class is going to be looking at you. And you don't know what to say. Now, the control of the creation. Look at verses, going back to verse 8 and 11. He says, Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick garden, uh, darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said this far you may come but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. God would impress upon Job that he not only did the creating of the material universe, but he also controls the universe. And he illustrates that control by the boundaries that he placed on the oceans. He says, Job, can you do that? Can you keep the waves from going past the shoreline, Job? If not, then you shouldn't complain about the way I do things. And that's one of the amazing things about the ocean's boundaries is that God uses sand many, in many places to be the boundary of the oceans. And as we know, sand is weak. You know, Jesus talked about building our houses on the sand because they'll crumble. Sand is weak and it's unstable, and yet God used it to stop the oceans. But this should encourage us, because we may be weak and we may lack ability, and yet God can still use us if we will surrender our life to him. Then the calendar for the creation is mentioned in verses 12 through 13. So next in God's speech now are the questions about day and night and the location of the sun, all of which produce our calendar. The calendar is a result of God's wisdom and power. God focuses here particularly on the dawn, the breaking of day, the first appearance of light, which starts each day, each new day of the calendar. This note about the creation will add more significance to God's superiority over man and about the things that God does. God is so great and his power and his wisdom is so strong that man has no right to complain about the things that God does. And with the dawn being the main focus of the calendar here, God questions Job in four areas about the dawn. 
The first question he asked God about the dawn is the command for the dawn. Look at the first verse in, in, chapter, in verse 12, the first sentence. He says, have you commanded the morning sun? I'm sorry, have you com- commanded the morning since your days began? What a humbling question. God asked Job, if Job, since the day you were born, do you have the power to bring up the sun? The obvious effect for the question is to humble Job before God. The second question, how about the change for the dawn? The second part of verse 12, and have you caused the dawn to know its place? The reference to know its place refers to the changing of the location of the sun for the dawn. You know, this rises in the east and it sets in the west. Do you know the location? Do you know where it is? In the fall and winter in the northern hemisphere, the, the, the dawn starts in a more southern place than in the spring and the summer. God's wisdom and power ordered all of this. The third question, the ceasing at the dawn. Look at verse 13 and then we'll look at verse 15. Verse 13, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. Verse 15, from the wicked their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. The coming of dawn, the coming of daylight on the earth stops wicked people from doing their evil deeds. A lot of wicked deeds done by evil people are done when it's dark. Because evil loves darkness. Jesus said, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. So when the light comes up in the morning, all of the people doing evil, they all take off. Like bats when the sun rises, they hide till dark time and then they come out again. The dawn has many purposes. Daylight has many purposes and they're all ordered by the great wisdom of God. The fourth question about the sunlight is the clarifying of the dawn. Look at verse 14. And it takes on form, speaking of the earth, it takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. In other words, as the dawn comes up on the earth, as daylight breaks, it changes the earth from an indistinguishable mass mass to one with form and color. And isn't that true? At nighttime, it's hard to distinguish things. You know, the mountains and and the trees and all, it's just like like one big dark mass. But but when the sun begins to come up, now you see the the trees and the mountains and the colors and you see everything. The the sunlight clarifies everything. And it's it's compared as as the light approaches that the earth takes shape like clay, it says, uh, beneath a seal. Now, a seal being like a signature ring. A seal had a, 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 would be a, 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 like, like clay. It has nothing on it. But if you take a signature ring, which has the, the king's name or his impression, and you put it on the ring, now there, there's, there's uh, a sign of something. There, there's character to it. And that's what he means here, a signature ring, I mean, or a seal rolled onto the clay which is the first figure that is given here by, by God, it changes that formless clay into one with clear images, the image that's on that signature ring. That's what the dawn light does. It changes the earth from a dark mass into one that has hills and valleys, and, and you can see all of those. So the dawn brings, it brings clarity. Then the climate of the light, weather is part of God's creating. 
And there's two factors in the climate that are given here. First, precipitation. Now, there's four things said about precipitation. And notice the different kinds of precipitation. Verse 22 speaks of snow and hail. In verse 26, he speaks of rain. In verse 28, he speaks of dew. And then in verse 29, he speaks of the frost. What are the results of precipitation? Well, notice in verse 25. It says, Who has divided a channel for the overflowing water or a path for the thunderbolt? Now, it's the results of precipitation are floods. That's what he means by overflowing water in verse 25. The results of the rain in verse 27, notice, to satisfy the desolate waste and cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass. The, the, the pouring out of precipitation brings fruitfulness to the earth, according to verse 27. Then there are the changes in precipitation in the, in the rain from water to ice. Look at verses 29 and 30. From whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven? Who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone and the surface of the deep is frozen. So again, the providence of God in precipitation. The rain, the snow, the ice, the dew and the frost. It's all used by God. And you know what? It's, it's used according to his will. And sometimes it's used to, uh, to, to change the outcome of war. Look at verse 23. He says, speaking of the, the different forms of precipitation, he says, which I have reserved for the time of trouble for the day of battle and war. You see, he says, I, I, have res- I reserve them as weapons for the time of trouble in the day of battle and war. And we saw that when, you know, when Egypt, when, when um, you know, hail and fire was, was rained down on Egypt for destruction. You know, and God brought the rains 40 days and 40 nights as judgment upon the earth. So he uses it for different things. Then in verse 24a, where is the path to the source of life? Look at verse 24a, the first part. But what way is light diffused? In other words, God's asking Job, Job, do you know how light is parted or divided? Like when I created the earth? Like when I divided light from darkness in Genesis? Or at sunrise and sunset? So that in the two hemispheres, where there's darkness on the one and light on the other, or under the two poles, when there are interchangeably six months of light and six months of darkness, Job, do you know where the path of the, of the light is, how it's divided? Or, Job, how it's parted in an unequal distribution of day and light at different seasons and in different climates? Or on, on one and the same day at the same time, the sun will shine in one part of the earth and not another. And even more especially, if this had been known, how that the light was divided like this, if this had been now, been now a fact known that there should be darkness all over the land of Egypt and light in Goshen. Some understand this to be lightning that's mentioned later on. Then he goes on in verse, the second part of verse 24. He says, where's the home of the east wind? Notice, or the east wind scattered over the earth. The east wind that rises sometimes with the sun or the first spring of light or which light spreads and and scatters itself from the east as it can be rendered. Job, do you know how this is all done? The sun rises in the east and in a very quick and surprising way, it spreads its light all throughout the hemisphere. 
Or this, this might be the east wind itself, which scatters the clouds and either spreads them in the heavens over the earth or scatters them and drives them away like the north wind does. And then he goes on to talk about Job, the, to Job the planning of, of these things. Look at verse 34 and 35. Job, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightnings that they may go up and say to you, here we are? Here God humbles Job by pointing out that Job can't order storms. He can't order the rain, the snow, the thunder, the lightning. He can't change the weather. Only God can do that. So who is this Job guy to be so arrogant as to complain about what I do? Verse 36. Who has put wisdom in the mind or who has given understanding to the heart? Who put wisdom in man's heart? To guide the stars, to know the laws of heaven, to set their boundaries on earth, to manage and direct the clouds and the lightning. No such wisdom is put in man. Only God can do this. To understand, who put wisdom in man's mind and heart? To understand all the things that he just mentioned above. And, and, and answer the questions in this, in this chapter. Who understands all these things? Who put the wisdom and understanding in man, whether natural or spiritual? The question is, who put them there? Where did they come from? Who gave them to man? The answer has to be God himself and nobody else. Man has a rational soul. He has intellectual powers. He can think. He can reason. He, he can understand things like in, in, in the arts and the sciences and trades and, and manufacturing. It's of the Lord. It's not himself or from somebody else. God's given them that ability. All spiritual wisdom and understanding, which makes man, you know, concerned about their eternal welfare. And, and, and who makes man concerned about his, 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 you know, spiritual condition. You know, and also, you know, enables him to, to know, uh, uh, inquire about salvation by Christ and, and able to know the truth and the doctrines of the gospel. It's all of God. And to know Christ in the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God, it's all by God. So no man has any reason to glory in his wisdom and knowledge. And as Paul said, what do, we, what do we have that we haven't received? God's given us everything. Verse 37 and 38. Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can pour out the bottles of heaven? When the, clumps, when the dust hardens in clumps and the clouds cling together. Or Job, who has the wisdom to be able to count the clouds when the heavens are full of them? Job, how do you explain the nature of clouds? How do you, expel, how do you explain their matter, what they're made of? How do you expand, uh, explain their motion, Job? How do you expand, expand, uh, explain their use? No one can do this perfectly or completely. No one but the Lord. He says there, notice in verse 38, I'm sorry, verse 37. Who can number the clouds of wisdom? No, here it is. Or who can pour out the bottles of heaven? The bottles of heaven are referring to the clouds filled with water. Who can pour out the bottles of heaven? When it's it's God's will to pour them out, that is, when it's God's will to, to just let the rain pour out, who can stop it? 
Who can limit the clouds from pouring out its rain? Who can do this? When it's the will of God to withhold them. Who can pour it out? When he, wants not, when he doesn't want to rain, you know, and, and there's a drought, who can make it rain? To stop or unstop those bottles or those clouds, to restrain rain or to pour out, is totally the, to, up to the will of God and not man's. And he says in verse 38, when the parched ground is dry and the soil has hardened into clouds. You know what? It's up to God to pour out the, the rain when the ground is hard and, and the dirt is you know, just lumped into clogs to moisten the dust in the clouds. And then he speaks about the, the, the heavenly, the celestial in it. The next thing that God questions Job about is the material creation in the, in the stars in the sky. Look at verse 31 and then 33. He asks Job, can you bind the cluster of Pleiades or choose the belt of Orion? Uh, verse Verse uh, 33, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their, their uh, set dominion over the earth? Let me go to verse 32. Can you bring out Maseroth in, uh, in its season, or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Obviously, Job cannot control the constellations. That was, that's what the word Maseroth means here. Job, can you control the constellations? Can you control any of the stars in the sky? Obviously, he can't. But God can. Why? Because he created them. And he set the laws and order in the universe. And you know what? The, 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 the heavenly bodies, they obey God's laws. They obey his ordinances. It seems like man's the only creation that doesn't obey the, all of the laws of God. The greatness of God makes man look so small. Therefore, how can we justify, justify our complaints about God? And then the second part of creation that God questions Job about is the animal world. Look at verses 39 through 41. He says to Job, Job, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lurk in their lairs to lie in wait? Who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry to God and wonder about for lack of food? Now, these are simple questions, but they're humbling ones for Job or anybody to answer. You know, he, he's asking Job there, Job, he says, you know, who, who, who gets food for all the animals, for the birds and, and the lions? Who provides for them, Job? The wild animals seem to do well when it comes to their food. And they seem to have plenty of it. Now, somebody must supply food for them. Job, do you supply food for them? Obviously not. God does. So in closing, again, 38 is just a, 39 is just a continuation of 38. So he keeps on asking the questions. But, you know, again, we're going to cut it off here at 39. And we'll continue God's questioning in, uh, next week. But in closing, the providence of God is, is just so amazing. The hand of God, the work of God, it's so amazing. In God's wisdom and power, God supervises the whole universe. And God makes sure that all of his creatures are taken care of. 
Now, we humans, we, we have a hard time taking care of ourselves. We have a hard time keeping our life going and operating smoothly. But think of God who, who, who runs the whole universe with such precision that we build our scientific laws on his creation. In comparison, Job couldn't do any of these things. And obviously, God's orderly creation is provided for. God set it in motion. He takes care of it. It's well taken care. It's well cared for. And yet Job thought that God's heavenly plan was hit or miss, chaotic, and and that God lacked control. And and, and he, he lacked care. Scripture, remember, tells us that he does all things well. One commentator said this, Complaining about God is wrong because it shows no proper understanding of ourselves, no worthy apprehension of his wisdom and goodness. Even in the strangest experiences, submission, not complaint, is the becoming thing. Father, we thank you so much for for Job, God, and we thank you now as, as God speaks, Lord, and Father, just the questions that he asks, God, as we, as we ourselves put ourselves in Job's position, God, we would just stand there, Lord, just flabbergasted. Father, we would stand there with our mouths open and our heads down, God, and just humbled. God, just convicted, I would pray that, God, just, I'm sorry, Lord, that I would question you. That, God, that I would doubt you. God, that I would have any complaints about you, Lord. That I would ever be angry at you, Lord. For you know all things, God, and you do all things well. Father, help me to remember that. To never forget that you are the I am that I am. That I am all things to all men. I am whatever they need me to be. And so, Father, may we look to you in a different way tonight, God, and every day. As we look to the creation, as we look to the trees and the flowers and the the animals, God, the birds in the sky, the, the clouds and the moon and the sun and the mountains. And God, as we look around, those are those are all symbols, signs of of your creative genius, God. And that we couldn't do any of those things, God. Lord, we have difficulty just making it through the day, Lord. So, Father, we thank you for your almighty power, God. We thank you for being the great I am. And, Father, help us now to lean upon you, Lord, to trust in you more and more, and to know, Father, that you have the answer to all the questions of life, God. So we thank you, Lord, and we love you. We give you honor and glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.